If you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 through 31 is where we'll be this morning. I will eventually get there and read that text. But before we get started, two caveats to today's sermon. Um, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to last week's sermon. These sermons build on each other and they're, that they're meant to do that. And so today you won't get all the context from last week. So hopefully you were either here last week or listened to that online. Please go back and listen to it. These two sermons build on each other. The other caveat I'll say is it'll feel like, today's going to feel like a lecture, so take notes. It's not going to feel that sermony. Maybe at the end it'll get a little sermony, but it's going to be more of a lecture, more of a teaching this morning. And these two sermons last week and this week are going to churn a bit. They're like, um, Ash uh, makes me ride the Peloton at home all the time. And so one of the <laughs> instructors um, uses, like, we're not going to go for it. We're going to, it's going to churn a bit. This is going to, we're going to slowly build here and it's going to, we're going to churn. So they, they feel like the sermons are doing that. The, these, the, today and last week, they churn. They're not, they, they don't have like this exciting sort of finish. They're just, they're, they're slow moving up, 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 a, up a hill. So, um, so with that, let's pray. God, thank you for your faithfulness to the ch this church the last 10 years. I'm grateful. Um, I don't feel as nervous as I felt two years ago, 10 years ago standing up here. But still, there is vulnerability and a lot of weakness in my and myself that I confess to you. And I ask, God, that you would fill in the gaps and you would anoint me with your spirit to teach. Uh, I pray that you would give us um, ears to hear, hearts to receive, that uh, your spirit would, um, would speak to us. I, I could speak to people's ears and maybe even sometimes their mind, but only you can change hearts and realign us to what reality is. And I pray you do that by the power of your spirit. In the strong name of Christ, we pray. Amen. There's a big debate going on in the hip-hop world over the term for the culture. I don't know if you ever heard this term before, for the culture. Some say it's the most overused term in hip-hop and still others say it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just something people say now. Critics say it doesn't mean what it meant when Jay-Z used it in his song, Izzo, when he says, quote, I do this for my culture. Now the term is used by almost everyone, like the Migos use the term now, like everyone uses this term. But there's a bigger problem when we're talking about for the culture because culture was Webster's Dictionary Word of the Year a few years ago and everyone freaked out when that happened. They freaked out because the word of the year has always marked the culture for the year. Like selfie or last words, last words, uh, last, last year's word of the year was they, as in the preferred gender neutral word, they. But why was the word of the year to mark the culture for that year, the word culture? I mean, it's super meta. Meta should, probably should have been the word of the year. <laughs> but why culture to mark the word of the year? And so people asked the dictionary people and they said, because culture was like one of the most Googled words that year. And people think that's because no one knows what the word means anymore. Because there's a culture for everything now. There's coffee culture and club culture and sneaker culture and music culture and even hookup culture. Now, back to hip hop for a second. Hip hop scholars say the term for the culture really means and has always meant that when a rap artist was doing something for the culture, they were doing it not for money or success or self, but for the art form to continue. They were literally doing it for the culture of hip hop, doing something to contribute to the culture of it for the common good of it. 
They say that hip hop has always been an extension of street culture and black culture and youth culture and that hip hop started creating new things out of old things that were already there. For example, sampling old records or telling the story, the, telling the experience of the streets but putting a new twist on it, etc. So hip hop is all about creating something new out of something that was already there. And if you were doing that, you were doing it for the culture. And this is where everyone agrees. The word culture, whether it's the word of the year or the phrase for the culture, if it's used in rap, the root means to take something that's already there and make something better out of it. The New Yorker had an article about the fact that the word of the year was culture, and it ended this kind of this rant piece by saying this, culture may be pulling itself apart from the inside, but it represents in its way a wish. The wish is that a group of people might discover together a good way of life, that their good way of life might express itself in their habits, institutions, and activities, and that those in turn might help individuals flourish in their own ways. The best culture would be one in which the three meanings of culture weren't at odds with one another. That's not the culture we have at the moment. Our culture is fractured, and so our sense of the word culture is too. But it's possible to imagine a world in which our collective attitudes and institutions further everyone's individual growth. Maybe in such a word, in such a world, the meaning of culture would be more obvious and we wouldn't have to look it up. Today, I, I want to talk about culture, but more than that, I want to talk about renewal. And I want to show you how renewal must be for the culture. And this is how we have to think about it as Christians. If we're thinking about renewal, we have to think about renewal as being for the culture. Because whatever you think the culture is, and we'll talk more about that in a second, what everyone agrees on, from hip-hop scholars to writers for The New Yorker, is, is what culture should mean, is that a group of people, a community, working together to take what's there, no matter how broken that thing is, and turn it into something better for the common good. Andy Crouch, in his excellent book, Culture Making, says, Culture is what we make of the world. Culture is, first of all, the name for our relentless, restless human effort to take the world as it's given to us and make something else. This is the original insight for the writer of Genesis when he says that, the human, that human beings were made in God's image. Just like the original creator, we are creators. And this takes us to last week. When we talked about the two-part gospel versus the four-part gospel. Most of us, if we grew up in church, we grew up hearing a two-part gospel. And two-part gospel goes like this. We are born a sinner, bound for hell, and Jesus saves us, and we get to go to heaven. Now, now it's not that some of that isn't true. Humanity has sinned. There isn't a single person in this room that isn't broken in some way. We all know it. We feel our brokenness. Sometimes we feel our brokenness more than other times. So this two-part gospel isn't wrong. It's just incomplete. And in, and in its incompleteness, it causes us to make assumptions that are wrong. 
And this is part of the problem why Christians have a hard time engaging in culture because of the two-part gospel. For example, to say someone that to say that someone was born a sinner and to believe that this is part one of the story, we start with assuming that people are sinners. What that also assumes is that people can do no good. They're sinners. That there's nothing good that a person can do until they get saved. And that kind of thinking gets us into all sorts of trouble. This is why I know so many of, I know so many people, especially under the age of 40, Christians who are deconstructing their faith all the time. This two-part gospel is not compatible with the world we live in. When we live in a world where we actually do see a lot of good and you grew up believing that everything is bad and you need Jesus, you don't know how to interact with the world at all. Because people who are not followers of Jesus, they create good things too all the time. I don't think the bread maker from Outerlands is a follower of Jesus. I don't think that person is, but dang it if he isn't, that bread isn't from God, right? <laughs> I don't know. I would love to know if he was or not, but if he is, it ruined my illustration, but whatever. <laughs> I don't think USF, UCSF or Stanford hospitals have an all-Christian board, but if you think that the healing that those hospitals are doing are not good for our world, you're crazy. There's all kinds of good in our world. So you have a problem with a two-part gospel, and it's like this. If you start with the story of sin, you can only really celebrate things that are saved. Now, my point is this. When we have a two-part gospel and we start with sin or the fall, we don't really know how to engage with culture. The stuff humans, Christian or not, make and create, we have a hard time engaging with that when we don't know even how to engage. And we think, at best subconsciously, but at worst consciously, that we can only really engage with it, with a thing or a person, when that person moves towards salvation. For example, you might have not have you might have not started listening to Kanye until recently when he put out a gospel album when all his really good stuff was from years ago, right? Now, it's still good, but it was like, right? So now we think, well, he's baptized and his art's baptized, so I can listen to the new stuff now, but not really the old stuff now. This here is what, this is kind of how we see life. Like, I can't really engage with that. And then it gets, that thing gets baptized or saved or Christianized. And we're like, oh, now I can engage with that. Now I can take it full on. That is a two-part gospel way of thinking. This is why we need a four-part gospel or the whole gospel. And the whole, go whole gospel that we talked about last week goes like this. Creation. That is really important to get right if we're going to talk about culture. Fall. Redemption. And restoration. Again, I, I shared a quote from uh, Mike Metzger last week. I'll share one again this week. He says this about the four-part gospel. He says, for 2,000 years, the gospel was recited in four chapters titled Creation, Fall, Redemption, and Final Restoration. It reminds us that we are made in the image of God. This gospel started in Genesis 1 and can be found in the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. Tragically, 200 years ago, the story was edited to two chapters, the fall and redemption. The opening chapter of creation was largely forgotten 
The new starting line was Genesis 3. It reminds people that they are fallen sinners. We're both made in God's image and sinners. Yet the two-chapter gospel accentuates our wounds. The four-chapter gospel elevates our worth as image bearers of God. The two-chapter story focuses on our deficiency. The four-chapter story reminds us of our dignity. We have to start with a whole gospel. And the whole gospel, instead of saying that the Bible starts with sin, brokenness, and tragedy, it's understanding, it's getting into our imaginations. It's getting into our Christian subconscious, our Christian conscious, our Christian imagination, meaning as followers of Jesus, this is the way we think. The Bible actually starts with creation, beauty, and goodness. So I want to read to you Genesis 1, and I want to read it slowly, and I want you to get this. Genesis 1, verse 27, if you have a Bible, turn there. I want to read this slowly. I want this to permeate your imagination. So God created mankind in his own image. You were made in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The Bible doesn't say man was created in God's image and then woman came later. It says male and female were created in God's image. They both were created in God's image. They are both image bearers of God. God blessed them. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, in this context, it doesn't mean rule over them by eating them. It actually doesn't say that. Listen, look at the next verse. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and with seed in it. They, that's what you're going to eat. To all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, that's what you eat. You eat grass and seeds and fruit. Obviously, we don't live in this world anymore. Like, vegans here are so stoked. You're like, see? <laughs> you, you are insufferable, but you do have a point with the Bible. But this was for everyone. Every animal was vegetarian. Every human was. The way that God told us to, listen, this, this, the Garden of Eden started as every single thing on the planet, you're supposed to harvest it from the ground and eat from the ground, extract from the ground and have sustenance and have life. And humanity was to rule over the earth to make sure that everyone had enough from the ground. Okay? And it was so. And then, listen to this last verse, 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is where the Bible starts. It was very good. Then there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, puts it like this. In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, and laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. 
So at the very, very beginning of the Bible, this is for everyone. We are all supposed to do this. When we start where the Bible starts, we understand that humanity's first job description is something we are still doing today. We are still functioning in the cultural mandate. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. This is so important. I want you just to, I want to separate this sentence from everything I've been saying because this is so important. It doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not. Everyone on this planet contributes to this some way. This culture can be good. We can extract things from the earth and use that stuff to fly into outer space and explore. We can extract stuff from the earth and make new limbs for people. We can extract stuff from the earth and create medicine. We can extract, this is the, this is culture. And we all do this. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. We're all humanity. This is like humanity's thing. Now, the easiest way I've learned to think about culture is this. And you might not ever forget this. This is so easy to remember. What is culture? Nature gives us eggs. Culture gives us omelets. Think of it that way. And that's so true. It's so easy to think of it that way. Nature, what, what kind of like... Nature gives us eggs, right? And we're like, oh, we take these things, and it's culture that allows us to make omelets, taking the raw elements of nature and extracting them to make omelets. So you need fire for an omelet, right? A nonstick pan and butter and cheese and salt and eggs, and you can make a perfect omelet. All of that is culture. All of that is extracting from the earth potential, putting it all together so that you can make culture. And that's all, that's all that culture is, whether it's music or language. It's extracting the raw elements of whatever's there and arranging it in ways that it's beautiful. My daughter Juniper right now is learning culture. She's learning to say dada. This has been a year-long project that I've been working on since day one. I brought her home, started reading her the Jimmy Fallon dada book, like... We're going to say data, you know, that sort of thing. And she's accidentally said it a few times, right? It's hard to say data. It's hard to get those words out and get your tongue in the right place. And she said accidentally. And when she does, I'm like, oh my gosh, you said it, data, you know, that sort of thing. And she doesn't know. She's like excited, like, oh, I did something amazing. I don't know. I can't do it again. I just, I'm trying. I can't get back to that. I don't know what I was doing to get to do that again. I don't know. But she's learning and eventually she'll learn how to say it. And then it'll attach that word, language, will have meaning to it. That word will mean me. Someone I hope she continues to grow in love with over and over and over again. That's culture. She's learning music. We got her all these instruments for Christmas. And she loves, like, wiggling. Anytime anything comes on, like, music. And I'm not musical at all. So I go, and I like it right now because she thinks I'm good. It's awesome. I have a little guitar for her. And I just basically, I mean, I don't, I just got like that. And I just strum it. And she starts wiggling and she walks to me like, serenade me. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. This is like what it must feel like to be a musician. Like, and then she has little drums and I'm just like, and I, I feel, now she doesn't realize that I, I actually, I don't do music. I'm doing just raw sound. And hopefully she'll learn how to arrange that in a way that actually makes music. So when we go into the kitchen and I put on like, Camille Cabello or something like that, and it's like, starts to play, and she's like dancing, I'm like, that's music. What I do isn't music, but she doesn't know the difference yet, but she's learning. That's culture. And all this is good. 
It doesn't have to be, I didn't buy a Christian guitar. No, this has, this is made by Christians. This is like, <laughs> a good piece of music is good because it's good. It doesn't have to have Christian lyrics. It's goodness points, and the goodness that a music piece has points to a transcendent good God. And a lot of people have reversed engineered it. If there's beauty, there has to be God. A lot of people, a lot of thinking philosophical people have done the reverse engineering to get to God from transcendent beauty. A good movie is good because it's a good story. It doesn't have to have a Christian director. Now, this is part one of the gospel. Okay, this is really important to understand. Now, but what about part two? There's a fall involved. Yes, there is. Part two of the gospel is that sin entered our world through disobedience and a lack of trusting God. This is Genesis chapter three. If you've ever read, maybe you did start to read through the Bible this year, you got to Genesis three and there's this tree that is the knowledge of good and evil and it's there. And a lot of people have pontificated about why in the world is this tree there? Why didn't God just take the tree out and there'd be no option to disobey him? The tree is this question here. How will humanity rule the earth? How will we create? Will we rule the earth and create in trust and submission to God, who, who knows good and evil, and we trust to teach us the difference between good and evil? Or will we kind of grab onto autonomy and hijack the definition of good and evil for ourselves? And that's the question that hangs in the air at the beginning of Genesis chapter three. Now, if you know Genesis chapter three, Humanity chooses, and we choose this a million times every day, to go our own way. And what happens is what is called the vandalism of shalom. Shalom is the way that God created the world in harmony and, 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 and order and beauty, all of that stuff, and then it's been vandalized. And due to that, the world and its goodness, it's still good in an ordered world, but it's tainted, marred, and cracked. Example, over the Christmas break, there's uh, movies that were on repeat on certain stations, right? And they were on repeat for like a week solid. Like The Christmas Story, like over and over again, that movie is on. Elf is over and over again. But some network decided to put on one of my favorite movies on holiday repeat, The Devil Wears Prada. I have no idea why. I have no, I have no idea why it has to do with Christmas. But I was like, I watched it like maybe a few times. I don't know. And I was reminded that fashion... It's a movie about fashion, by the way, is good. It's literally culture making. It's beautiful, etc. And it's marred by things like greed and eating disorders and sexual exploitation and pride, etc. And this is everything. Technology is good and marred at the same time. This is all of the culture that we make is both good and marred because of the fall. All humans making culture, it's marred by the fall in two ways we're told in Genesis chapter three. The re when we make culture, it's marred by um, two ways that, that we feel. One is the difficulty of life, how hard it will be to make culture. And the second is the motives of our heart. Again, Nancy Piercy, this is what she says in her book. The fall did not destroy our original calling. I'm going to read this again. The fall did not destroy our original calling. We are still called to make culture, but only made it more difficult. Our work is now marked by sorrow and hard labor. 
In Genesis 3, 16 and 17, the Hebrew uses the same word for labor of childbearing and the labor of growing food. This is interesting. The text suggests that the two central tasks of adulthood, raising the next generation and making a living, will be fraught with the pain of living in a fallen and fractured world. All our efforts will be twisted and misdirected by sin and selfishness. The things that we are called to do on this planet still is marred by the fall, and we feel this. So what about part three of our story? What about redemption? How does redemption help us make sense of our cultural mandate? When we say that Christ brings redemption, we are saying that Christ releases us from the guilt and the power of sin and restores us to our full humanity because Jesus was the only true human. He truly, in submission, in humility, partnered with God to bring about God's presence and renewal. He did this completely and fully. What he did was he did this so that we could once again carry out what we have been created to do. He redeems us. Redeems means he takes us back to our original intent but gives us a, a new heart in doing it. See, the Bible starts not only with humanity made in God's image, sent into the world to create culture. Humanity was sent to spread God's shalom, his presence everywhere. So what Jesus does when he preaches the gospel is that he makes the kingdom of God, that is the realm of God's presence that was lost in the fall, he preaches that kingdom being available to us again through his life and work. So Jesus preaches the gospel. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's available. You can now come back into the presence of God and get on with what God is doing in the world now with new hearts and, and a life that's connected with God where eternal life starts now. Now, I know those are a lot of Christian-y words that need unpacking, and we will do some of that. Now, here's the point. The, at the point of salvation, when someone becomes a, a, a Christian, or maybe you want to say conversion or redemption, when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, at that point... Christians are people who now work for cultural renewal. So hopefully you followed along with this like trail I was going down. Everyone's called to make culture and create culture. We're all, that's, that's humanity. But it's all broken because of the fall. Christ comes and redeems us and saves us, literally brings us into the kingdom of God or into the presence of God and then says, okay, now that thing that I called you to at the beginning... I want you to do that now, but do that in the way that I intended it, with me, in my presence, spreading my presence, with me, bringing renewal in the world because the world is marred with sin. I want you to be a part of me reversing that over and over again throughout the world. Now, this is what, this is that, now this is where we got stuck last week. What does that mean? How do Christians bring cultural renewal? Now, I want to, before we go any further, I want to also say with humility we have to move forward from this point because a lot of times we just don't know we don't know what we don't know we don't know the, the effects that we think we're bringing renewal and ultimately what God does with it 10 years later we just don't know and so we have to enter into this part of the conversation with a healthy dose of humility and looking to God saying we don't know God show us the way but Christians are to partner with God to bring about renewal as part of believing in the whole gospel. Now, what does that mean? 
Cultural renewal seems aggressive. And it's, it's you might say it's, it's probably kind of the problem with our current world right now, at least in America's politics. Christians trying to elect a certain person to get their agenda done in our nation. That's what's wrong with the world. Especially if you live in San Francisco, you say, that's what's wrong with the world. In Andy Crouch's book, Culture Making, he writes that there has been four ways historically that Christians have tried to act upon the culture. He says, Christians have tried to condemn the culture. He says that's, that's the first way that Christians have historically tried to act in culture. They've condemned it. Uh, he calls this fundamentalist withdrawal. This is like when you look at the culture and you're like, this, culture, this part's bad, this part's bad, and you withdraw from it. You leave, you flee it. You're like, it's, it's really bad. This is why up until kind of like the last, you know, I don't know, 15 years or something, 20 years, most Christians avoided cities like San Francisco. I don't, like, I don't know if you, I don't know where you're from, from the Midwest, like I moved to San Francisco, I don't know if people said, why would you go there? God's not there. Like, that's like the most godless city in the whole world. Like, why would you go there? Like, that's a, a condemn culture. We're going to condemn that culture. We're not going to go there. We're not going to shop there. We're not going to eat there. Well, I'm, I condemn that place and I'm leaving. I'm not going to go. This is fundamental withdrawal, okay? A fundamentalist withdrawal. So Christians have thought this in, 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 in history. We're like, we, we condemn this part of cultures. We're not going to engage. The second way that we have historically tried to act in culture is critique culture. This is, he calls this evangelical engagement. This is a little bit highbrow. This is like when you philosophically engage with a piece of art and you're trying to extract like what, what are the movements of scripture, what are the redemptive edge of what's happening there, all this other stuff. And honestly, for the most part, it's really hard to do today because they just don't make movies like that anymore. But when they do, it's really fun to do that. But it's also really highbrow and you become a critic, but you don't know how to create. So that was one way. People like, well, let's crit just critique culture. The third way, he says, is we copy culture. Now, if you are a millennial, you grew up around this era. If you're late Gen X, this is exactly what you did. This was the results of the Jesus movement and the, 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 the like, uh, Christian music movement. This is where we just like, they have rock and roll? Psh, we have rock and roll. <laughs> and this is Christian rock, you know? Um, they have uh, uh, t-shirts, uh, we have t-shirts. Uh, that's just, it's just copying culture, right? This is the relevant movement. Like, let's just be relevant. They have these things, we have these things, but here's a Christian alternative, that sort of thing. So I remember when I became a Christian, like, if you like this band, you will love this band, that sort of thing. Um, so they copied it. And so you're like, you watch Left Behind movies or whatever, and, and you listen to Christian music and that sort of thing, right? So that's copy culture. Now, we don't really do that anymore. It's like not a thing at all. If you notice, like just, just like think about it for a second. Where did that go? It's not really around at all. I mean, I don't even think Christian bookstores are a thing anymore, but that's just not around anymore. You know what we've moved into? The fourth one is consume culture. This is our cultural moment right now. We are not trying to make Christian Netflix or Christian iPhone. We'll just consume what's out there right now. And this is what we'll do. We just kind of move to become connoisseurs of culture. And we just think, did I like that? Did I not like it? Was I moved? Was I entertained? We just don't even think about it. We don't critique it. We don't condemn it. We don't copy it. We just full on take it in. Most of us do that now. Most of the people that I know do this now. Uh, my daughter loves um, any, anything with buttons, anything remote control in the house. She'll grab and just want to push all the buttons. And like, obviously that's not helpful, like, because everything turns on and off and all this other stuff. So I bought her for Christmas a kid remote, just a kid one. 
that she can use. By the way, they don't want that. So I just learned that. I didn't know that. I want the real thing. I know the real thing, and I know what's fake. So anyway, I know that now, but I didn't know that then. I'm like, she'll love this. I was telling her, this is my favorite gift thing I got her. Like, I just outsmarted her and got her one for her. This is her own. So anyway, so she, when she used it for like the first hour, it would turn on, and it would have this little jingle. And the jingle went something like, there's so many things to watch on TV. So many things to watch, so little time. That, that's the jingle. And I'm like, whoa. This remote gets it, like this remote. And this is what it's teaching, like this is like consume culture. Like the people that wrote this are like, oh, this is great. Turn this little person to a consumer. Just all the things, all the Netflix, all the binging, all the streaming, all the stuff to them. So many things to buy and eat and watch, but there's so little time. I just wish I can waste my life just consuming. This is, this is our moment right now. But what's the answer to all this? How do Christians engage, in culture, engage with culture? Because it's not condemn, it's not critique, it's not copy, it's not consume, it has to be create. We have to be a part of shaping culture and making culture and creating culture and taking the future age of redemption, part four of the story, the renewal and the redemption of all things and bring that to bear on the current culture. How do you do that though? In his landmark and highly influential book, To Change the World, sociologist James Davison Hunter said that there, are, there has been two ways the church has tried to shape culture and change the world. Spoiler, Christians can't change the world, he says. We can only join God in changing the world. We can't change the world. But there have been two major false starts in trying, for Christians trying to change the world throughout history. Here's how we've tried to change the world. These are false starts. One, evangelism. Now, I know it sounds like we're supposed to evangelize. We are supposed to evangelize. But listen to this. The thinking goes into this category. If people's hearts and minds are converted, they will have the right values, which will lead to the right choices, and thus culture will change for good. So convert people, converted people, a bunch of converted people, that's how culture changes. Now, evangelism is a good thing. Obviously, Jesus, that's like the mandate that Jesus left us with. Evangelism can be very limited in changing the world because Christians live very bifurcated lives. Example, Christians, slavery, and colonization. You don't have to say anything more than that. This, is, this was like the main thing that we'll just convert them and keep all the slavery in place and all the colonization, but just convert them. And all this, we know now that was horrific. Evangelism is not the way to change. Now, we are still called to evangelize, by the way. Still very much called to be evangelist and in every way be evangelist. But to think that this is how we're going to change the world is a false start. The second false start, which is very, very active today in our nation, is politics. We think we need to legislate the kingdom. This can be a false start. Now, Christians need to be in politics. Christians need to be every single place that culture is happening. But most time... This is not, when we think we could change the world through politics, listen, this might be a little insider language, but I think this, you, you need to hear this still. This is not kingdom thinking, but empire thinking disguised as kingdom thinking. Okay? So if, if you know what that, that means, it's, it's not the way of Jesus. It's very Constantinian. It's, it's triumphalism. It's 
the kingdom needs to have power and authority in the highest places. And then we legislate all of that power down. And that is not how Jesus' kingdom works. Now, again, you might not know what that means, kingdom versus empire. In other words, the way politics generally work is through power. And worldly power that naturally tends toward manipulation, domination, and control. Now, we still need politics. We still need uh, we still need policy to change. We still have to be advocates of policy in our, as citizens. We need to still advocate for, we still need to be in politics and involved in politics and all that. But when we think that politics is the way that the Christians change the world, that is such a dangerous false start. It's just like evangelism, still very important. Politics and being involved in politics are very important for Christians. But if we think it's the way we are sent to change the world, this will lead to very, very bad things. So, how do we join God in the renewal he's bringing into the world? James Davison Hunter says, the answer is faithful presence. And I think that will be the topic of next week. But I want to end right here. Let's end with back to hip-hop because, yes, right? (laughs) For the culture. What do we mean? If we were to start to, not to say that, let's not say that, but let's just think it. Let's just not say it because it will sound stupid, but let's think it. If we start to think that how do we do this for, the, what's, the, what's the culture of Christianity? What's the culture that we're promoting? What's the culture that we're advancing? What is the culture that we carry? The answer is the culture of shalom. That is what we carry. Christians, followers of Jesus, carry this culture of shalom. So when we do things for a culture, any culture, we don't do it for hip-hop culture, though I love it. We don't do it for street culture or sneaker culture or coffee culture or any other of the cultures. We do it for shalom culture. No, don't say that. But if we do it for shalom, we do it for that kind of, we want to see that move into the world. We want to see shalom move into the world. If we believe the four-part gospel, part one and part four are shalom. Part one, God created the world with shalom. Shalom filled the garden and was supposed to spread all over the earth. And then part four, the redemption of all things, shalom fills everything. Therefore, that's what we're after. Shalom is the vision of order and harmony, fruitfulness and abundance, wholeness, beauty, joy and well-being. We need intention as a community in this city around this word. This was God's intention in creation. And, it, and it, it's his promise in the new heavens and the new earth. Actually, the entire biblical narrative centers around the shalom God intended and that he will one day restore. That's exactly what the Bible is in like a sentence. And so we need to be people who are creators of shalom, advocates of shalom wherever it's not found, And blessers, I don't know if that's a word, but I made it up. Blessers of shalom in places that we do find it. So for creators, real quick, you don't have to be creating metaculture. You might not be a CEO. I know there's a lot of CEOs. There's a lot of uh, founders in our church. And I know some intentionally are creating a culture of things that they, they know to be true about the future of God's kingdom. And they're weaving that into their company. I think that's beautiful. But some of us, are, uh, we, we, we don't create meta-culture that way. We, but we still, everything has a culture. Uh, our home is a culture. Our work is a culture. Our community is a culture. Even your social media presence is a culture. 
And so we have to be creators of cultural shalom. Think about that in terms of like how we order our homes or how we are part of a community. What kind of, are we all, are we ordering our lives around the, the shalom of God? And we also need to create be thinking, and this is again next week, creating healthy systems of shalom. Shalom needs a system. For example, recycling. Recycling needs a whole system, a really good system. You don't just compost and recycle. For you to even, there's a possibility of composting and recycling. There has to be different bins and a system, and then those bins have to go in a larger bins, and those bins have to be put in your driveway, and then there's someone that picks up that specific bin and then puts it here and then drives it to this place where they sort it and they do something to it and they sell it off and then hopefully that's recycled and used. Do you see how the, there's a system of it? You don't just one day somewhere like in Iowa where they don't have recycling, not to say they don't, but just imagine they don't. <laughs> like I'm going to recycle. How? I'm going to burn this and with this ashes make food. I don't know. Like it doesn't make sense. You need a system of it. And so we need to be thinking about how do we create systems of shalom in the city, in our church, where there's flourishing and the whole system allows people to join into this shalom project at like an easy level all the way to a complex level. Okay, we need to be advocates for shalom. Whenever the rights of the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger does not have a protector in the Old Testament or they don't have someone to stand up on their behalf, God always calls for people to co-labor with him in establishing his shalom. He always does this. This is basically all the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. Like, there's no justice in the land. And God's like, I'm looking for people who will advocate for my justice, who will stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves and advocate for their shalom. This is summed up in Micah 6, 8. God has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Gosh, if, you just, if we just nailed that verse right there, as followers of Jesus, nailed that verse. This is advocates. We need advocates for shalom. And lastly, we need blessers. We need people that are walking around blessing the shalom, enjoying it and blessing the shalom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once suggested that a blessing is a visible, perceptible, effective proximity of God. It's when God like comes near and blesses it. And this is what we need to do as people who carry the presence of God within us through the spirit of God, step into places and bless. I bless what this is. I just bless it. Last, this last week when I was going to annual vision and prayer, I took a lift and uh, my lift driver just started talking about um, homelessness, which is a really, really, really important topic. And he said that he is writing to a congressman about his plan for homelessness in San Francisco. And he tells me his, I'm like, what's your plan? Tell me your plan, all this other stuff. And he tells it to me. And of course it has all kinds of holes in it. And I don't tell him the holes, but he goes, what do you think? I'm like, well, it has legs. You just keep going. It has some holes, but it has some legs. So keep going. And then I was about to get out. I'm like, listen, I bless you. I bless, I use these words. I bless your efforts in working towards homelessness. It is such, it is God's work, man. I bless your work. And he turned around and thank you. Thank you. And I just get out of the car. Like, that's what, that kind of thing, like when we see it places, like, I bless this. You're doing the work right here. This is, this is the work of shalom right here. You might not know it. This is God's work. And he's using you to do this. And I bless this work. We need to be people who create it, create healthy systems of it. We need people who advocate for it when it's not there in our city. And we need people that bless it when it is there in all of its forms. And we just walk, we walk around, we bless. So...
That's the end of part two. Let's stand as we pray. This teaching was recorded live at Reality San Francisco. And as a part of our weekly gatherings, we move from teaching to responding to the Holy Spirit through prayer and a time of ministry. It's hard to capture that on a podcast, but we encourage you to pause and consider how the Holy Spirit might be inviting you to respond to what you've just heard. For more resources and details of how to join us on Sundays, please visit realitysf.com. May the peace of Christ be with you.